You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. Today, we have a bit of a, a heavy but very important and I think very relatable topic. We're going to be talking about grief as a biblical practice, and we're talking with our friend Jeff Chu. Yeah, Jeff is a guy I've known him now for about a year or so, but he's you know, he, he's a journalist. He's written for Time Magazine. He's a seminary graduate. He graduated from Princeton Seminary very recently. He's an author. He, he wrote a book, Does Jesus Really Love Me?, and he also now he's been for I guess for about a year now over a year he's been working with uh, Sarah Bessie and Rachel Held Evans when when she was still with us as curators and organizers of the Evolving Faith Conference and I got to meet Jeff and I just knew from the first time I talked with him that Jeff's going to have a lot of things to say about some pretty important topics so we're excited to have him here yeah and we I, I appreciated how we weaved together um, a lot of the Bible and what it has to say about grief, but also our personal practice and, and maybe what drew the three of us together and connected around uh, all of us attending Rachel Held Evans' memorial service and kind of processing that, but also then talking more broadly, universally about grief and the Bible and some of our experiences with our own traditions about grief. Yeah, grief, not just, I mean, it's a big thing, but when people die, we grieve, but there's there are opportunities for grief on a daily basis, and uh, it's sometimes hard to, especially in Western culture, to talk about those things. So, But we did, and I think it's a great episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we just jump right in? Let's do that. To express a need is an invitation to yourself to remember that we're not meant to bear the burden of grief alone. We're not meant to mourn alone. And that's a really hard thing for me to believe, that my need to grieve is an invitation because I wasn't reared to ask for help and to show my need. I don't want other people to see my grief because I'm afraid it will be perceived as weakness. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. We uh, have a lot to talk about. We have somewhat of a heavy topic, but I think it's a very meaningful and important topic to talk about. But before we jump into that, maybe you can give us a little of your background. What What was your spiritual background and how did that draw you into a more professional study of spirituality, Christianity, ministry, and faith? So, I grew up in a super Southern Baptist family, uh, but with a Chinese twist. And there's a lot of pastors in my family. My grandfather was a pastor. My great-grandfather was a missionary. My uncle is still a pastor in Hong Kong. And that actually sent me away from anything ministry-related. So, my greatest desire has always been never to have any kind of role in ministry at all. Uh, but because God has a sixth sense of humor. <laughs> it jokes on you, Jeff. <laughs> exactly. Somehow I ended up in seminary. Uh, and now I am an overeducated, unemployed former seminarian. Hmm. You're not the only one. It could be worse. You could be uh, an overeducated PhD and be unemployed. <laughs> Fair. Or, or you could be undereducated and, and unemployed. unemployed. <laughs> it's, there was always there's, so there's many worse variations off. Here. Always so many worse off. So many possibilities. Yeah, so. 
Well, well, like Jared said, it's you know, it's it's a it's a topic. It's a heavy topic, but it's a common one. It's something we all experience at some point in time. And talking about grief, and of course, you know what is the idea of even this podcast is. You know, our friend Rachel Held Evans passed away about about two and a half months ago, as we're recording this, and you know we've all process this in our own minds in different ways. And Jeff, I'm sure you've gotten questions from people, and I have, just like, can you just do a podcast on how we're supposed to deal with this? And I I guess this is sort of that, right? (laughs) We're doing this with you. So, you know, grief is a thing that we we want to talk about, and we're looking to see just how you've processed and, and what grief means to you and, and you know, the biblical notion of – and I don't mean that sort of in a proof texting kind of way, but there is plenty of grief going on in the Bible as well and what that means and maybe bad ways of thinking about grief and, and all that sort of stuff, just, just things to help people process. Well, I appreciate the uh, insinuation that I actually know how to do this. And that, that's been one of the hardest things is I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to grieve. Hmm. And I think the aftermath of Rachel's death has shown me that in far too vivid terms. There have been days where I've woken up and I've sat kind of catatonic in front of this computer that I'm supposed to be writing on and I have no words. Hmm. And a friend will text me and it'll become clear that that friend is going on with their lives. And I just think to myself, and I want to yell at my friend, but it seems rude. I can't go on with my life because my friend isn't here anymore. Mm -hmm. But there's no manual for how to navigate those moments and those days. No, there isn't. Well, and I think that's important, maybe even to tie it to the Bible. That's one thing that in this time of grief, and, we, and and I think everyone can connect to that because we're grieving in a lot of different ways. And I think we'll talk in a little bit that it's not just death that we grieve. Grieving is is a loss. It's it's emotionally processing a loss, and we lose things all the time, and not just people. And and so you know, thinking through what you said is it's refreshing to think about grief as this thing that pushes us into. The unknown. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of a wisdom category because it's not right or wrong. It's not, here are the three steps. It's this up and down. It's this process that we often can't, I think, get our arms around. And there's something really, as hard as it is, there's something relieving to that. For, for me, growing up in a tradition where everything about life can be boiled down into a few easy steps. Mm-hmm. So, while it's it's challenging, it's also something refreshing to be in a position where we we have to lean on each other. We have to sort of stumble through this together. And that can be important, especially when we do this together and not just individuals, which is, you know, again, my tradition growing up, very individualistic. I think that was my tradition too. And I think that is American culture being imprinted on our life together, right? But when we look at scripture, so much of what happens uh, in terms of grief is processed communally. Uh, When I think of Psalms, for instance, nearly all the Psalms, even the ones that were written in the first person and recited in the first person, were meant to be spoken communally or sung communally. And that's Mm -hmm. a really striking thing to me. And in the Jewish tradition, they still are uh, something that the Psalms are something that are used in communal settings. And it reminds me that we're not meant to to bear the burden of grief alone. We're not meant to mourn alone, even though that is what society tells us all the time. It's almost, Jeff, like we're, I mean, this is at least my experience. You shouldn't show your grief. You should almost be a little bit, look how strong they are. Because it's, it's, it's a, almost an embarrassment, a sense of shame to grieve, like to beat your breast, you know, and things like that, that they used to do in the old days. It's, I mean, at least that's my experience in our culture, that it's a source of embarrassment. It's something that if you must do it, do it quietly on your own and get back to work. I have felt like over the last couple of months, I don't want other people to see my grief because I'm afraid it will be perceived as weakness. 
it will be perceived. And being gay, there's an extra layer of uh, sensitivity to that because I fear that I will be once again perceived as less than a full man, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't had that many models of tender masculinity in my life. Models of men, straight or gay, who experience their emotion without shying from it. I remember when I was a kid, the person who told me not to cry from an early age uh, was my grandmother. And she was a Bible teacher. And she was also the first person close to me that I lost. Uh, It was my senior year of high school. And it's striking now, uh, looking back and remembering all the times she told me, big boys don't cry. Well, I'm glad that you kind of brought this out even bigger than just grief, because grief is if, if the, one of the more vulnerable emotional states. But I think it's true of most emotional states that, well, I don't know if it's a Western thing, but somehow this privileging of rationality over against emotion. And I, I'm thinking primarily of men, you know, of the, you know, the documentary, uh, The Mask You Live In, that talks about, you know, men in, in this country and, and emotions. But there's something about grief that does feel weak. And and I, I just can't help but connect that to the gospel, this gospel where weakness is power and power is weakness and the foolishness is wisdom and wisdom is foolishness, this upendedness of the kingdom and how grief connects to maybe this countercultural witness that somehow maybe grieving is a way of being a countercultural witness for the gospel. And that sounds so counter, even saying it, I feel like I'm kind of betraying my tradition, which is grief is sadness over loss is conceived as quote unquote unfaithfulness to the gospel because the gospel is good news. And so if you're sad about something, that's not believing that you know, Rachel's in a better place or this loss, this, you lost your job. Well, look at the bright side. It, there's always a positivity. And that's what being a good Christian means is being positive about everything. But the weird thing is, right, we all know that verse. It's one of the only verses that every single person can recite, which is Jesus wept. <laughs> so, it doesn't make sense when I step back and think about it that we denigrate these demonstrations of emotion. If you look back at John 11, it says that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled, and a couple verses later, he weeps. So, clearly, there's a disconnect, uh, even in these traditions that claim to be so Bible-based, because we don't model our emotional practice uh, on how the Christ we claim to believe in uh, behaved when a friend of his died. It's another example of imposing, not intentionally, but imposing our Western ways of thinking onto this ancient text. And we sort of might be blind to things like Jesus wept or, you know, Paul talks about sorrow. And, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's a pretty common thing, I think. It's unfortunate especially with something like grief, which can be so, well, so necessary for the healing process for people who are left behind. Yeah, I, I think of that as, I'm glad that you said that, of leaving people behind, because in, in my tradition, I felt like the if we're to minister to the truly hurting people, to I, I felt as a pastor, I was encouraged to cheer people up. And our services were built around making people happy. And I found that so... Um, I had this phrase where I said, um, you know, that we make sure we don't uh, confuse optimism with delusion, where, like, we had to pretend everything was okay. That seems to be a Sunday morning in a lot of the churches that I would have been pastor, pastor of or attended would have been about pretending that there aren't things to grieve in our everyday life, injustices that we have participated in um, or been subject to, that there aren't these things that, frankly, every week there are lamentations that we can communally process and go through and how that actually can lead to the gospel. That can be eventually good news, but delusion and pretending actually isn't the way to get there. Has that been your experience, Jeff, just in in some of your ministerial roles and, and as you've process these things? I think one of the the things I've learned over time is uh, not to rush people past difficult parts of their stories. 
So the other hat I wear is journalist, right? And I worked at Time Magazine and, and then at Condé Nast and then at Fast Company. And I've had the privilege of sitting at people's kitchen tables and on their living room couches and hearing some very difficult stories. And as a journalist, you listen, you ask questions so that people have the opportunity to go deeper. You give them the space to tell their story. And I think those who are called to be pastors and ministers have something to learn from creating that kind of space, uh, from not rushing people through their sorrow and not pushing them quicker than they're ready to go through the painful parts of their stories. From the, the scriptural standpoint, I think one of the most hopeful passages of scripture for me, maybe perversely, is Psalm 88, because it doesn't end in a happy place. Mm -hmm. It doesn't end with anything uplifting at all. Uh, so I recently got uh, Robert Alter's translation of the Hebrew Bible, which mm -hmm. I highly recommend. I think it's beautiful. And I want to read the last line of Psalm 88. So this is what it says in the NRSV. You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. So this is what the psalmist is saying to God. God, you have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. Well, Robert Alter, I think, amps it up even more. Because the way he has it translated is, God, you distanced lover and neighbor from me. My friends, utter darkness. Yeah. So the NRSV has friend and he dials up the intimacy and accuses God of distancing us from our lovers, right? Like there is no more intimate relationship. And to be able yeah. to blame God for breaking that relationship is a powerful thing to do in scripture. And for me reading this, it gives me permission to take the most painful, the most uh, graphic accusations and pour those out to God. God can handle even my angriest accusations. Yeah, and, and even, you know, Jeff, not, not that Robert Alter needs my approval, but that last line there, it, in Hebrew, it doesn't say, my friends are in darkness. There's no in. And, and, and Alter's translation, read that again, that last part there about the darkness. My friends, utter darkness. Yeah, darkness is, are his friends. The only friends he has. <laughs> As or, or emptiness and darkness, those, those are his closest companions. Yeah, that's, so that's how the uh, the NIV translates it. Darkness is my closest friend. Yeah, that's gut wrenching. So why can't we do this in church? And it's such an invitation at the same time. When I am in a bad place or I'm struggling with something, to be able to read Psalm 88 and just sit with it, not wallow, but sit with grief, sit with loss, sit with pain, whether. It is on the scale of death or confusion about something that's going on in my life or some situation that has turned grim and has not worked out. I know Psalm 89 is there, right? I know Psalm 90 comes after it. And Psalm 89 starts, let me sing the Lord's kindnesses forever. But sometimes I'm just not ready to even say that aspirationally. Mm -hmm. To be able mm -hmm. to just sit in the utter darkness for a little bit and to hear from the psalmist from Holy Scripture, that this is okay, that is tremendously hopeful for me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, maybe say more about how, how does ending unresolved, how is that hopeful? It is permissive. It is welcoming. It is hospitable to say, this poem is going to allow your grief to be whole. Mm -hmm. I am not going to cut it off before it's time. That's not to say that it has the last word because it does not. Death never has the last word in God's story, right? We have the rest of the book of Psalms and the rest of scripture. But here in the midst of all these songs and prayers, we have one that is entirely devoted to rage. 
mm-hmm. is entirely devoted to anger at God and even blaming God, which is something that in my tradition I was told was sacrilegious. Yeah, you don't do that in church, that's for sure. God might hear you. But why not? God already knows how we feel, right? So what lie are we trying to tell? Well, it's, on, it's an invitation to be fully human, which in my tradition, we were trying to be something that sounded robotic or maybe superhuman instead of an invitation to be fully human. It's interesting you say rage, too, because when I read Psalm 88, my first thought is actually the book of Jonah, which sounds like the, the prayer of Jonah, too, is taking this pastiche of Psalms, some of which sound very Psalm 88-ish. And, and that's another book that invites you to be fully human. It doesn't resolve at the end. And there's something relieving to know that if I'm experiencing right now the fact that I don't understand how this is going to work out, how death isn't the last word, I, I, need, I need something for that time of my life. And Jonah, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, many of the Psalms, I'm really drawn to because not that, I don't, not that people don't need some resolution in some other things, but growing up, that was the only thing I was given. I wasn't given permission or an invitation to be fully human and to allow things just to sit unresolved. I don't think there's any more fully human prophet than Jonah, right? Because in that story, if you read it carefully, he doesn't really come out as the good guy at all, even at the right, end. You're just left with this big, like, what? <laughs> I mean, a honestly, he's the one who's so confused by God saving the city, and we don't get a happy ending there. And yet he still gets to be considered a holy man and a prophet. And what hope that gives the rest of us that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to understand God's grace and we don't have to be able to make sense of the limited amount of God's story that each of us gets to see Mm -hmm. to be loved by God and called by God and accepted by God. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you, for service, and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. And, you know, Jeff, the thing that always strikes me when we talk about this, I mean, all these things that you guys, you and Jared are bringing up, passages and such, they're from the Old Testament. And 
That's, for me, like one of the commercials with my students, why the Old Testament is very important, because you have these moments that are not minor themes, really, in, in the Old Testament. And the news is a little bit different. You have some, you know, Jesus wept, but by and large, you don't, you don't have lament psalms after the resurrection. You know, you've, you've got this sort of this triumphant moment, but there's so much time that transpires in the Old Testament. There's so much time for stuff to go wrong. There's so much time to grieve and to lament. And we, I mean, the church has been around for 2,000 years. You know, we, in that respect, we have much more in common with the lament psalms or with Jonah or with Lamentations or Jeremiah than we have with some of the stuff that Paul says. We've had so much time to screw it up. Yeah. And to have things just happen to us. You know, where where's God? You know, no, no one's really saying that in like AD 40. <laughs> <laughs> he just, what do you mean? God just showed up. You know, it's called Jesus. So, and it'll all be over soon. Just don't get married, you know, <laughs> life insurance, that kind of thing, right? But for us, it's like we're in the long haul. And I mean, not to go off on, this is not a tangent, but I think a lot of Christian theology has been about adjusting to the long haul and thinking through what does it mean to live like Christians here and now, and we're still doing that. And that is really very, very parallel to the entire history of Israel in the Old Testament, where a lot of time has gone by, things have changed, and we've had to try to process what it means to be the people of God here and now. And that comes with it a lot of time to grieve and to lament. We miss something if we don't, like, look at these stories and these examples, which, like you said, Jeff, they're, they're affirming. You know, they're mirrors of the soul, as John Calvin said. There, there are ways, uh, they're, they're giving us permission that, you know, we're not broken. We're not bad people. We're not faithless when, when we grieve. It's part of what it means to be human. And there are plenty, there's plenty of permission in Scripture to do just that. Paul talks a little bit about his suffering, right? But I wonder if it's mm-hmm. also a matter of genre. And huh. Paul's writing letters. And if you are trying to exhort your friends, you're not going to constantly focus on the things that are going wrong. That's a really good point. Yeah, I agree with that. You're going to encourage them, or you want to encourage them if you're a good friend. When I write letters, yeah. I don't just talk about all the shit that's happening in my life. Right. Because who wants to get that letter? Right. But the genre, the genres that we find the grief in, uh, in the Old Testament, they're not letters. They're poetry. Uh, a lot of it is in poetry, and a lot of it is history. But the poetry, what's fascinating there, and this really contradicts what we were saying before about the American sort of Western experience, that stuff, like half the Psalms, something's going wrong. So, something is really going wrong in about half the Psalms. The context for the Psalms is worship. That's what you do. You don't not do that. You do that. That's exactly the opposite of how I think all of us were raised to think. You're supposed to be happy in church and not grieve. And, you know, so we don't have funeral services. We have, what do we call them, Jared? Just, uh, you know, celebration of celebration life. Celebration of life. I don't want to talk about that. completely opposed to that. For the record. Well, so am I. And, uh, you know, when, when Rachel died, I did everything I possibly could to, to get to that funeral. And, of course, we were all there. Jared was there, too, because I, I needed to be a part of that. I just – I couldn't even explain it. I just, I just knew I had to be a part of that communal process of grieving because it's not the same as sitting at home and watching it. I think one of the great gifts that her family gave – Uh, her friends, and also her readers who were able to watch the service online was that it was her family that was insistent that this would be a funeral. They knew uh, in their bones that they needed a a space, a sacred space in which to grieve, and we needed it. And so that made those of us who were planning the service itself, uh, made it easy for us to proceed with a liturgy that honored uh, that honored their wishes, but also recognized that this was death that we were dealing with. We weren't just going to talk about how awesome it was that we got to be 
in some small way part of Rachel's life and experience all the gifts of her existence. Uh, we were actually going to mm. mourn the fact that that had been uh, taken away. And there's there's so much happening there. And, you know, not to contradict myself, but those of you who weren't there, it, it might still be on Rachel's website. I don't know. The whole thing was ta- – and I hope it is because there are things that happened there that I think are worth experiencing for people who might not have an experience of communal – grief and what that looks like and the permission given by all the speakers and you know Nadia Boltz Weber gave one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life just being very honest very psalmish and raw about how this sucks yeah yeah the the link is still there the link's still yeah. there okay that's really good so for people who might not have been a part of that just and, and you know if 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 you know, they, they knew Rachel were affected by her. To, to watch that might not be a bad idea, yeah. I think. It's rachelheldevans.com slash funeral. And, and, and understanding that healing, if, if what we're really for is the wholeness, healing happens often through grief. And so we're actually to insist that we have celebrations of life and that we just, I don't want everybody to feel sad. We have to realize that sadness is often the journey to restoration. It is the journey to healing. And I think that, you know, Jesus's death and resurrection, that model and pattern has become so important to me to recognize when I, when everything in me wants to avoid the hard things and the sadness and the grief, I recognize that it's only through death that we have resurrection. We don't get to skip over Friday and Saturday and just get to Sunday. And that was, I just am so grateful that I feel like Rachel's uh, family and, and everyone that was involved allowed for that understanding that we have to pass through this stuff. We don't get to go around it. And mm-hmm. that's one of the central themes, I think, of the gospel. And the Christian story is not about immortality. It's about resurrection. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's an important thing to remember, not just about physical death, right? At the beginning, you all said that uh, we wanted to talk about different kinds of loss uh, and different kinds of grief. And I think remembering that our God promises to redeem everything is important. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about other kinds of grief because, you know, we grieve for many things in life and there is a similar process. I mean, it's very different than losing a loved one, but there are many things that people grieve and have to mourn on a regular basis, right? I think it's a normal part of life and it's a normal part of love, right? I feel a little bit of grief when I leave my best friend's house and when I've ended a beautiful weekend with him and his family and we're not going to see each other for a while. Uh, Loss is part of gain. I don't think you can have one without the other. It's kind of like the majesty of the Grand Canyon exists because there is that dramatic difference in landscape. You don't go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and just look up at the sky. You look down and you see the valley as well as that whole landscape. Uh, And I think I I, I interviewed these artists once. Uh, It was one of my first stories at Time Magazine. And I'm not entirely sure I agree with their formulation. So it was Christo and Jean-Claude. And Christo and Jean-Claude... Their thing was uh, uh, doing these grand, huge scale wrappings of buildings. So they like wrapped the Reichstag in Berlin and and they've uh, wrapped islands in Biscayne Bay off of Miami. And then they did this thing in, in Central Park in New York where they put up these orange banners and it was wintertime and it was beautiful because you had all this white snow and then these bright orange banners. But every project that they did Uh, over like 40 years was meant only to last for two weeks at the most. And then it went away. And it was their way of capturing their belief that we love as powerfully as we love because we know the possibility of loss. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true in every circumstance. And I I, I think the Christian story pushes back against that a little bit. But I I think there's some truth in it in that... uh, we do have these little griefs that punctuate our lives, partly because we love things and love people. And there's always a possibility, and not just possibility, but reality of loss and different kinds of loss 
in addition to physical loss, death. Change is inevitable, right? Nothing stays the same. You can't bottle a beautiful moment. A fantastic meal inevitably comes to an end. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know people who, you know, in academia, I I know more people than I care to mention who love academia, who who love, let's say, biblical studies or theology and who were trained for it and who sacrificed to go through the process of going to seminary and doing doctoral work, and they might be teaching for a while, but, you know, there are cutbacks, and they lose their jobs, and schools are cutting back all over the place, and and they come to a point where they say, I have to stop, I have to feed my family. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have to stop this dream. I have to go into another line of work. There is a real grief process there. There is a mourning of letting go of love of something you simply love to do and realizing you can't do it anymore. I think sometimes it's letting go of something that you imagined would be. Yeah. And sometimes you ma- you you base that imagination on something unrealistic. I think mm-hmm. I think often actually about uh my parents, the dreams they had for me when I was growing up uh and well into my 20s before I came out, right? They had mm-hmm. this picture that I would like everybody who came, every guy who came before me in my family, I would be a good Baptist deacon with a nice Chinese wife and two to four nice, cute, smart, accomplished, violin-playing Chinese children. Mm-hmm. And there's grief in the reality that that is never going to be what happens because I married a white guy. So mm-hmm. all kinds of loss there in their view. Do you, do you grieve for their grieving? You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? Cause they're your parents. Do you, do you feel like, I don't know. I don't know if that's even the right way to put I it. I think but. this might be controversial because I have been accused of being too conciliatory towards non-affirming theologies and non-affirming oh, people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I do. I feel yeah. my parents' grief. I occasionally feel guilty for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I can't. And that's part of your process. It's part of my process too. I love right. my parents. Whatever theological differences we have, whatever distance there is between us now because my life has not gone the way that they would hope it would go. I love them and I am sad when they're sad. There is a part of me that is delighted in the love that I have found with my husband every single day and I am so profoundly grateful for it. And it lives, that joy lives in tension with the sorrow that I know my parents experience. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, some of this, even what you're saying, when I when I used to teach um, teach ethics, I talked about the cult of potential. And I think that grief is one of those taboo things because it actually undercuts that cult of potential that we have in America, where everything is about the hope that you will become this thing. And, and once the reality sinks in that you will not become that thing, like we almost have to not talk about that. Because grief begins to undercut that. It, but grief begins to be seen almost as the opposite of hope. Mm. If I if I allow for the reality and I grieve the reality, I'm losing the hope that this might become this other thing. And <clears throat> so I think that's it also in that way, I I appreciate grief because it's accepting a reality. Like just what you said, Jeff, of like, we have to accept that that won't – my parents' dream and hope for me won't ever be the case. And – and so when we grieving is actually almost putting the stamp on that and saying, yes, there's, there's not a hope there. 
And and I feel like in America, at least, our culture, we're so obsessed with hope and potential that that feels almost sacrilegious to grieve. I wonder what cost we as a society in the U.S. are paying now for our failure to grieve these kinds of losses well. Hmm. Because so much of the political rhetoric, so much of the president's success has been about capitalizing on the fears of loss that people have. Losing their image of what their town, their community, their lives should have been. Mm -hmm. If our pastors, if our congregations had known how to grieve better and more candidly and more honestly, I wonder if we would be in a better place. I think a lot about uh, my favorite line. I'm not a Lutheran. I'm Reformed. But my favorite line from Martin Luther when he's writing about his theology of the cross is that a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. And Luther sees that as a necessary and honest and true step in light of the cross to being a healthy person and a healthy Christian. But so much of American society has refused to call a thing what it is. And I don't mean that just in terms of racism or bigotry or discrimination. I mean reckoning with the fact that the steel jobs aren't coming back, accepting the reality that not everybody is going to come from the same cultural background that you, that you come from, uh, acknowledging that the demographics of a town have changed and will change, and that change is an inevitability of life, right? Well, you mentioned earlier, you're talking about a little bit of controversy being conciliatory toward non-affirming theologies and, and, and the political realm. I can't help but also think that, I guess sometimes, I think that this is a very appropriate thing, because I, you know, I have a lot of family who would be very supportive of Donald Trump and make America great and understanding there is a grieving process. And sometimes, I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but having grace for those who are in grief in every sphere, understanding that, that there's change is hard for most everyone and there's grief on all sides. To, to accept that there aren't steel jobs coming back, that is a form of grief. And to have the grace for people who are, maybe who don't Yet, no, like you said, you started out with saying, I don't know how to do it well. I think there's a lot of people who don't know how to grieve well. They don't know how to grieve injustice well, but they also don't know how to grieve the poverty or the loss of job or the prospect that they won't have a life that maybe was as good as their parents. All of that kind of fits for me into this realm of how do we have grace for people and help them grieve better rather than what if, what if, our pastoral work toward grief superseded our need to judge. And I don't know where that line is, but have you struggled with walking that? I don't know where the line is either, but I do know that the exhortation to mourn with those who mourn does not come with an asterisk that says, if you happen to agree with their political convictions or if you happen to be friends with them. It just says mourn with those who mourn. Mm. And that's super difficult, right? What if they're mourning for the loss of something that is actually your gain? I, I don't know where that leaves me, uh, but I do know that Jesus calls us to a particular kind of grace and a particular level of empathy that is beyond us. Uh, and that's where God's grace comes in and the Holy Spirit comes in. And for me, God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit are very real things because I know so well my own limitations to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Just to come full circle to the, the biblical understanding too, though, I actually appreciate how the Psalms are often intertwined with both rejoicing and mourning and how it's more complicated even than just sometimes I'm doing both. And, and I go back to maybe even Rachel's funeral. I think I had very mixed feelings about rejoicing to see my friends, to see people that I really connect with and care about and have things to talk about. And so there was a rejoicing and there was a mourning and, and just understanding that our emotions are complicated and it's not black and white. And sometimes, you know, the psalmists, I think, do a good job of that where you start in one place, you end in another place, you have grief and mourning and and blaming God in one sentence. And then, uh, but I know you'll come through for me in the next sentence. And it's, 
this ambiguity um, that I think marks what it means to be human. It's just not always clear. And I think grief is that way too, where it is the ups and downs and it's a jagged process. I think that's absolutely right on the individual level. And I also think it's true on the communal level. So there's another of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 34, which is, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be ever in my mouth. And I like verse three, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. There are very, honestly, there are very few times in my life where I'm just 100% on board with exalting God. It's not something I'm good at. It, praise is not my natural uh, condition uh, for God or human. Um, my friends will tell anybody who asks that I'm not always the most positive person. <laughs> but I think... One of the reasons I love uh, Psalm 34, verse 3, and that is particularly the second part, let us exalt his name together, is that when I think of this communally, right, I imagine folks who are more gifted with a hopeful demeanor, helping to hold me up and mm -hmm. helping to encourage those of us in the congregation who struggle uh, to do those more positive things. We can't do it alone. Likewise, when I think of it on the ind individual level, I'm glad, Jared, for those, those tensions, right? Because we need some of those joys within our days to help lift up the sorrows. And we need some of the sorrows to help us understand fully the joys. Mm. Uh, so I really appreciate that there is this kind of interplay in some of these psalms, because it reminds us of how complicated our emotional landscapes are and should be as humans. Yeah, the Bible is a realistic book <laughs> in that respect. It really, like you said before, I think it's really important to, you know, as we draw this to a close, I think it's really important to remind people again of what you said before, Jeff, the permission, uh, let's even say the biblical permission to grieve without saying, I'll be with you in a minute. I'm just going to agree for a few seconds here. I'll be fine. Just to let that process go because, I mean, grief is how we process suffering. And if we're not allowed to do that, something's going to snap sooner or later. Or you're going to have just a plastic sort of veneer over your life where you're less than human. And I, I think the Bible gives us that permission to do that. I don't think it's just permission. You know, I would go stronger and I would say it's uh -huh. invitation. Um, yeah. So last fall, I took this class in seminary that was really transformative. And by that, I mean the ideas and the thoughts, they hit my brain so hard in a beautiful way that I'm still trying to figure out how to actually implement them in practice. And one of the things that this professor, Deborah Hunsinger, said uh, is that our needs, and I would include our need to grieve and mourn uh, in that, our needs are invitations um, they're invitations to other people to come alongside us in community. Uh, to express a need is an invitation to yourself to remember that you're not meant to be or to walk through life alone. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a really hard thing for me to believe many days, that, that my need to grieve is an invitation. Uh, because I wasn't reared to ask for help and to show my need. I think of need as a weakness, just like I think of grief as a weakness. Uh, and this invitation to know deeply that God has made us to depend on God and to depend on others, I think that's part of the invitation to grieve and to mourn. Right. Well, well put, Jeff. I appreciate that. Well, listen, we have unfortunately come to the end of our time here, and, and maybe in closing, just where can people find you on the internet? I'm, they probably can. Or if there are any projects that you're working on or that you just want to mention to the people out there, maybe to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, well, there's always my book, Does Jesus Really Love Me?, which I wrote a few mm -hmm. years ago and goes across the theological spectrum and tries to understand how it is that so many people claim to be Christian yet come to such vastly different understandings on homosexuality. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, Instagram is probably a happier place for me than Twitter, uh, but you can find me on both. 
<laughs> less political. Uh, political in a different way. Why don't we say it like <laughs> right. that? That's true. <laughs> right. And you can be on Twitter tweeting about Schitt's Creek. I can often be found right. tweeting about Schitt's Creek when I need some delight. And if people life. think we're cursing, we're not. That's actually a show on Netflix. And, and, and just when we talk about communal lamenting, we also have communal celebrations. And so we can all celebrate Schitt's Creek yes. as just a masterpiece of cinema. <laughs> right? Absolutely. A gift. Absolutely. From God for the people of God. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for, for coming on. It was just a, a wonderful um, – I mean, it's interesting to say wonderful uh, when we're talking about grief, but it is so much part of the human experience. I found this a healing conversation to just release the ideas and thoughts and feelings around grief and God and how that's all okay. And I just recognizing even now as I talk, how maybe that has been bottled up in me for years, being told that that's not okay to express. And it's it's not godly to grieve and to be sad about sad things. And I'm appreciative of your willingness to come and talk about your experience. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jeff. You just made it through another entire episode of The Bible for Normal People. Well done to you. And well done to everyone who supports us by writing the podcast leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. Before you go, we want to give a huge shout-out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Jason Oden, Eric Bauer, Christian Bernard, Erica Morad-Shahi, Alta Drought, David Jackson, Stephanie Nicole Walton, Steve Mitchum, Scott Birch, and Webb Hall. If you would like to help support the podcast, just head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate. Audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt. Creative director, Tessa Stoltz. Marketing director, Savannah Locke. And web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. And you could probably cut the thank you so much. I don't know where the hell that came from. Thank (laughs) you. Thanks for coming, folks. (laughs) Thanks for... Thanks in advance yeah. for listening before you even started it. Yeah. Dang it. Jaredson. <laughs> he is such an <laughs> you have no idea. I'm, I am a selective and wise yeah. I'm an when I need to be. I affirm that. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.